I was on vacation this uh, few weeks back. We, every year we go to the beach, which is a really special time for our family. And uh, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are puzzle people and there are not puzzle people. I am a puzzle person. I'm a diehard puzzle person. There's one time every year that I get to do my puzzle. It's at the beach in September. And this year, I bit off more than I could chew. I bought a 3,000-piece puzzle. And uh, normally I have help this year. I had my, my, some of my sons helped out for a little while, but for the most part, it was me and 3,000 pieces uh, over three days. And so I failed, which is a very tragic thing when you have to push a half-made puzzle back in its box. But here is a frustration that whether you're a puzzle person or not, in fact, if you're not a puzzle person, you might identify with this frustration even more. And it's this. You're building a puzzle, and you're dealing with, you know, colors like the blacks. And so, you know, it's hard to delineate what black piece from what black, or, you know, something of all the same color, the cloud pieces, okay, or the sky pieces. And you get a piece that almost fits. You know what I'm talking about? It almost fits. It either fits a little bit loose so it looks like it fits, but as soon as you touch it, it's a little loose in the cage. It's just kind of wobbly. Or it doesn't quite fit, in which case you're tempted to just kind of give that bear down push and make it happen and just move on. That's, you deal with that temptation, especially when it's 3,000 pieces and you're all alone and it's 2 in the morning. And you just don't want to go to bed because you have not made the zebra yet. And uh, so... so this temptation, now as, as a child, you can see children deal this way. When you watch children building their first puzzle, even if it's wooden pieces, like the wooden canary they're trying to fit into the dump truck spot, they will push. And it, they won't even be like a close match. It'll be like a long oar that they're trying to push into a circle. And they'll, they'll push and push and push. And it reminds me almost of like our innate sense of relativity, that everything, everything in life is simply relative to how we see it. Like, the harder we push, maybe, in fact, we'll convince this puzzle, okay, this is the right piece. But it's not. And for adults, we deal with all of, you know, instead of kind of actively and visually kind of bearing down on a piece that ought not to be there, we, as a puzzle person, I can tell you, we deal with this inside. Like, you'll come to a piece that you in your first application where you, I want it to work and you know, somewhere in you, you know, this is not the right piece. And then you kind of go through this spectrum of criticism, like dumb puzzle company, you know, because you're thinking maybe it was their dull knife and maybe it is the right piece. And so you kind of rationalize that and, you know, and you look at the details and they don't quite line up and you get frustrated and you think, well, maybe, maybe I'll leave it there. You, you do this. Sometimes you'll just leave a piece like that there for a while as though it's going to eventually agree. And that, that's, how, that's, how it, that's how it is. What would happen, by the way, if you were building a puzzle and you came up on one of these instances where you had a near match and you just left it and continued to build the puzzle? What would happen? Either you would find immediately, immediate conflict in the surrounding area Right? I mean, all the, all the adjacent exchanges that would have to happen would immediately begin to object because they would likely not be at all alike. So you'd either have that, or if you just had these two pieces, if they were the first two pieces you grabbed out of the puzzle, you know, two pieces and you started to work out this way, away from them, you would have two diametrically different 
images that would begin to flourish. You'd have, like, I'll show you. You can call up, Ryan, you can call up the picture. This is the puzzle I was trying to use. You would have, this is a Ravensburger, those of you who know. I just spare no expense. And, you know, you would have, like, the rhinoceros on the right and the orange feathery bird on the left. And, you know, on the top you'd be building a rhinoceros and on the bottom you'd be building the orange feathery bird. And while it might look like they can be together, the reality is, is it would start to look dysfunctional after a while. And then as you built the whole puzzle out, you, you know, as you work in from the borders, right? That's what you do, people. Some of you are not a meeting Thursday night here, Ravensburger. We're here till it's over. Uh, you work in from the borders, and as you would work in from the borders, pretty soon what you would you would recognize on this bottom left border is where's my orange-headed bird, and over there on the over on the right side, you'd say, well, I have my gazelles who are supposed to be drinking water, but they, instead of that, I have an orange-headed bird. You'd have this conflict that would arise, all because of one little piece. The whole puzzle would be destroyed. The entire puzzle would be a bust because of one tiny little piece. So how do we avoid that? Well, there's, there's two ways. Um, the, I, the thought, my, when I try to imagine making a puzzle without this picture, it makes me not want to do a puzzle. People who do puzzles, this is in their right or left hand all the time, and they, you set the light right so you don't have the glare, and you're always looking at this, and you grab a piece, and you you kind of hold it up and try to locate it. And even with 3,000 pieces, this is a very useful image. You can locate, especially after 26 hours of constant puzzling, you can pretty much smell a piece and know where it goes on this picture. And so after a while, but, but what you need is a picture of what the image ought to look like. You have to have that. That's what helps you stay straight. And then, and this is the more mysterious idea, you have to have a desire and patience to make it look like it ought to look like. That's what keeps you from mating together two pieces that ought not be together. Is in your heart you have to say, this piece is unique and it's a fun mystery to find out where it goes on this big landscape, but it is not here. And to take your time and set it aside or put it back in the pile and move on. And isn't that true about life? In life, if you force two ideas that ought not be together together, everything else starts to just fall apart. It isn't like we can be wrong in one important area of our life without it showing up in every part of our life. And I think we'll see that this morning in Luke. Uh, we're in Luke 11 this morning, if you, if you haven't already turned there. It's page 722 if you're using uh, the Bibles uh, available to you. I say this, uh, I don't maybe say this as often as I do. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible. As a gift, if you have a friend who doesn't own a Bible, and take that Bible and give it to them. Okay, we want to, I, I would love our church having to constantly buy Bibles. That's, that's a good problem to have. So we do want people to grow up with Bibles in their hands. And we're only looking at four verses this morning, verses 33 through 36 of the 11th chapter. What I'm going to do, I'm going to read all four verses and then we'll step back and we'll just walk through them uh, nice and slowly. So this is Luke 11, verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on a stand. It stands so that those who come in may see the light. 
Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. But when they are bad, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. Now that's the section we're going to look at this morning. I want to go back to the 33rd verse and start there. If you're somewhat familiar with the Bible, that sounds like a familiar passage. This idea of don't, no one lights a light and hides it. It even sounds like a song you used to sing, right? Don't hide it under a bushel. No, we're going to let it shine, right? That, 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 it's a familiar passage. In fact, it, it, that familiar passage is found in a very familiar section of the New Testament, maybe the most popular section of the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 5, 14 through 16, where Jesus says this. He says, you are the light of the world. Are you familiar with this? A city on a hill cannot be hidden. This is a very familiar passage. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That just resounds as familiar. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It comes in the Bible right after you're the salt of the earth, that section. I think when we look at Luke 11, we gravitate to that teaching. Because of the familiarity. Well, one of the reasons is because of the familiarity of the sound of the verse. Because here, it says essentially the same thing, does it not? It says no one lights a lamp and puts it under a place. He even uses the phrase bowl. He doesn't hide it under a bowl, but he puts it somewhere where it can be seen. It's, it's very, very similar to Matthew 5. And if we gravitate to this passage, this Matthew 5 passage, if we read Luke eleven thirty three and assume it's, it's the words mean what Matthew 5, 14 meant, then we begin, to, this is the teaching we draw from it, is the church, we the church are the light of the world, we should let our light shine before men. That's the teaching that we draw when we read Luke eleven thirty three and kind of connect it to Matthew 5. If this, is the, if this is about the church, it means the church ought to shine. The problem with making that assumption is it makes figuring out 34 through 36 very, very difficult. If 33 is saying, the church, you're the, you're the light of the world, shine, then how do, we, how do we do the math when we get to 34 and it says, your eyes are the lamp to your soul? I mean, that, that's not like simple math. That's calculus to try to figure out what train of thought Jesus is saying that travels seamlessly from 33 to 34. If 33 is, you're the light of the world, you the church are the light of the world, go shine. And 34 is, and your eyes your, are the lamp to your body. I think it's like we grab two pieces that look like they belong together. And when we just assume that's the teaching of the first verse, it's like we're kind of trying to jam them together. I'll make a confession to you. Uh, as I started to meditate on this passage a few weeks ago, uh, I actually got frustrated with Luke. It was actually my first response. 
like in a sinful, critical sort of way. Like my first response was, Luke did not do as good of a job as Matthew did. Which, by the way, is to critique the author of Scripture, was what, which, who was not Luke. Okay? But I thought, you know, it felt to me like what Luke did is he kind of did a word search for light and found all the light phrases of Jesus and tossed them in a paragraph. And, you know, because he was in a rush. It was, kind of, it was my initial balk of an emotion when I got here because I thought, you know, you're the, you know, no one hides a light. And I'm like, I'm with this will preach. Right? And then you get to, likewise, your eyes are the lamp to your body, and it's so frustrating. It's just hard to, difficult to figure out how the truth flows from 33 to 34. And here's, here's another reason, and maybe, maybe the, best of, the best situation to be in this morning is to have no familiarity with Matthew. For those of you who know familiarity, then you're not predisposed. But I think many of you are, and I think here's another reason why we might jump to that sort of idea, that this, this reading here is, about, is, is analogous to Matthew 5. And the reason we might be doing that is because there's not a lot of other context around in the Bible and Luke to tip us off about anything else. This passage from 33 to 36 is just kind of sitting in an ocean of red letters. Anybody have a red letter Bible, right? It's just kind of just sitting there. And in fact, it has its own title. In fact, what the translators did is, in most of your Bibles, they gave it a space, right? The Greek didn't have a space, and the Greek didn't have the title. But the translators gave the space and gave the title, and that makes us think that it stands on its own. And so if it stands on its own and we just read that, we really don't, Right? We have no other basis upon which to try to translate. And I'm not being hard on translators. They're, they have a, a difficult job to do. And they're trying to signify uh, uh, important ideas in the Scripture without necessarily severing it from the context. But, but 33 feels isolated, I think. If you just start, if you pick up the Bible and you start reading it there, it feels isolated. And I would ask you, is verse 33, just look at the Bible, is verse 33 a new thought? Do you have clues that would tell you that verse 33 is in fact a new thought? And I mean, get rid of the space, get rid of the title. Okay, those are not scripture. Those, those are translational aids, they're tools. Get rid of those things. Do we have any other clues that this is a new thought that, require, that has no context? It's a new thought without context. Do we have anything? Like, you know, the kinds of things that would trigger a new thought, like, Here's a good one. Luke eleven twenty nine. As the crowds increased, Jesus said. There's a clue. Another clue, like, then Jesus went to Caesarea and said. On one occasion, Jesus was eating and said. I mean, even look at the next section. Verse 37, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat. Starts a new kind of portion of the narrative. Those are our clues to say, I don't have to connect What follows with 37 necessarily with what what precedes 37 because there's a phrase that interjects in the middle to say, okay, you got that teaching, I'm moving to a new teaching. I'm asking you, what clues do we have that 33 is a new teaching? I think we have zero clues. I don't think there is a single indication that Luke chapter 11, verse 33, is it all separated from the sign of Jonah that we talked about last week. And yet, the title makes us just jump in there. And this is what I would say. If we, if we, if we take 
Luke 11, verse 33, and we place it in context with Luke 11, verses 29 to 32, I think there's a chance that we can make a better sense of it. So let me summarize last week. Last week, there was a crowd gathering around Jesus. They apparently wanted to see a miracle. Jesus said to them, look, you're not going to get another miracle from me. I'm not... I'm not like a miracle doer. That's not who I am. The only miracle you're going to get from me is my crucifixion and my resurrection. That's essentially what Jesus said last week. He said that the sign to which all of the signs point is my crucifixion and my resurrection. That is worth looking at. That's worth trying to gather around and figure out and understand. If you understand that, you understand why I've come. If you can grasp the resurrection, you can grasp why I've come and who I am and what I'm doing. If you can do that, That's what he says first. And then he says, and likewise, I'm really more like Jonah. I'm like a voice crying out against the people to repent, is what he says in that section. And then he goes a little farther to say, and in fact, be careful how you listen, because the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, she didn't go to Solomon for a miracle. She went to Solomon for truth. And she heard the wisdom of Solomon, and she recognized the wisdom of Solomon, and she gave him gifts and and honored him because of it. She didn't need anything else. And he says, how much greater am I than Solomon? And you want a miracle? And then he turns around and says, likewise, the men of Nineveh will rise up on the, in the day of judgment against you and condemn you because one is now greater, who's greater than Jonah, is here preaching repentance and you're not hearing it. That was last week. And after that, he immediately says, look, Nobody lights a light and hides it. If they light the light, they want you to see it. Now is it making sense? This isn't about the church. This is about Jesus. Jesus is saying, look, the fact that you can't see me is not because I'm dimly lit or hidden. The fact that it's hard for someone to get past things to the Lord is not because the Lord is a a one-watt savior. The Lord is a bright light. He's saying, look, I've come, and I'm not not hiding myself. This is a very evangelistic passage. This is is suggesting that Jesus is not like he came. He's not like this bright light that we put under a bowl, and the Lord occasionally cracks it, and all the gleaming light bursts out, and only about six people can see it. Jesus is saying, you want to see what I am? I'm the light. For all the world to see. I'm not hidden. Who I am, what I'm saying, the clarity of my message, the truth that I represent, my crucifixion, my resurrection, all of these things I am saying so that the whole world might know, as Paul says, so that man is without excuse that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what's being expressed here. And when we do that, we can get to verse 34 a little more easily. When we say, okay, that's the teaching of 33, that this is about Christ, and he's saying, look, you need to see me. The queen of the south could see Solomon for who he was, and I'm greater than Solomon. And the men of Nineveh could see Jonah for who he was, and I'm greater than Jonah. And then he follows right around and says, and look, I'm visible, I'm bright, I'm not hiding from you. That allows us to go a little more easily into the 34th verse. But before we do that, um, I I don't want to leave quite yet. Because I don't want us to leave thinking that verse 33 is about Christ, not the church. 
Matthew 5 is about God's people. And then I turned around and said, well, Luke 11 is about Jesus. But I don't want us to ever assume that if it's about Jesus, it's not about the church. Because anything that's about Jesus eventually shows up on the doorstep of the church, does it not? Eventually, we need to reflect and be that who Jesus was. Which means this. What kind of condemnation will the church receive if it is a light that hides itself under a bowl? If, if Jesus is saying, if Jesus is saying, my job is not to do miracles, the only miracle that matters is to, my crucifixion and my resurrection. That is the central idea. If you understand that, you understand me. Apart from that, my wisdom and my truth are validating, and you should see them. And they're not hard to see. They're easy to see. We could therefore kind of correlate and connect that the job of the church is to gather around the resurrection. That should be the source of our worship, of our hope, of our confidence, of our, of our, of our salvation. That is the signature reference of our faith. And after that, our job is to proclaim the truth and bestow wisdom on the world. Those are the, that is what we do. We worship the risen Christ, we proclaim the truth of God, and we, we share his wisdom with mankind. That's what we do. We don't feed people. We do feed people. It's not what we do. There's a difference. We don't heal people. Though we heal, it's not what we do. Though we clothe, it's not what we do. What we do is worship the resurrected Lord, proclaim and live his truth, and shine his light and truth and wisdom to the world. That is what we do. And I'm here to say the world will always want you to clothe them, feed them, and heal them as long as you just keep your mouth shut. That's what the world wants. The world wants us to do another miracle. The world just wants us to just land in Africa and feed the hungry. And if we did that, they might give us a byline of commendation. That is not what we do. What we do is call the earth to repentance. Because God is holy and he's come to save us. That is what we do. It just makes me wonder how we, sh- we hide our light. We have such a big calling, not a small calling. Verse 34, he, he, he builds. Okay, so we'll move to 34. He turns, and, and it is a twist. It's another twist, but he says this. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body is also full of light. But when your eyes are bad, your body is full of darkness. So he starts, he says, look, look, no one lights a light and hides it. So he's, he's saying, I'm visible, I'm seeable, I'm here, I'm not hiding from you, I'm a bright light. I've come so that mankind might see. I mean, the first chapter of John is a testament to this. He is the light and life of men. But then he turns and he says this phrase, your eyes are a lamp to your body, which sounds strange to us. It would not sound at all strange to those people. At this period of time, it's worth knowing that they had interesting ideas of eyesight. They thought that, many of them thought that the way we saw was actually by casting vision rays. That eyesight was not passive. It was active. You, you know, like you shine a light in a barn and you see the eyes of a cat? They would see that and they would say, there must be something emanating out of our eyes. 
So they thought that there were, they would refer to it as there were lamps in the eyes that would illuminate. And that was, yeah, at some level, that was their science, but it certainly was part of their philosophy. This idea, this is what Jesus is saying. How you see things matters. This is what he's saying. So you can have something that's very well lit and is very visible, but you may not be able to see it because you are hard of seeing. In a physical realm, we certainly understand this. Imagine this spiritually. What Jesus is saying is your perspective, your predisposition to see the truth when it's there in front of you matters. That's what he's saying. He's talking to a people who don't see him, He's castigating them for missing him. Then he turns around and tells them that it isn't, they're not missing him because he's hiding. He says, he's implying, you're in fact missing me because you're hard of sight. Because you cannot see. I'm saying, when you get to the throne of judgment, you cannot say to the Lord, I couldn't see you. The Lord will return and say, I was there to be seen. You chose not to see me. That's, that's what's being implied here. Is just, as a, in a soul perspective, we have cataracts that grow over our soul, that make it a film that can get over our soul, that makes it very hard for our mind's eye or our soul to see God for who he is. And you know this. You can see. Something happens. Imagine something sad happens. An old lady's walking across the street. She trips on a crack. She falls she, she hurts herself, right? I can imagine two hooligan kids going, ha, ha, ha. Uh, felt more awkward when I did it. But you can imagine what I'm saying. You can imagine that, kind of a, a hooligan-y kind of laugh at something that's sad. You know, we watch America's Funniest Videos. A lot of them are funny, but some of them, I don't want to laugh. Like, you kind of go, ow, that hurt, or that must have been embarrassing, that must have brought shame. You know, all the ones where the groom faints or whatever. That those, the, those, it has to do with our eyesight. There are many things that you and I look at and laugh or gain joy from that Christ mourns and weeps for because he has perfect sight and we don't. The truth is to be seen. Listen, the question is, can you see it? That's what Jesus is saying. I, I don't want to be ambivalent or unequivocal here. Or equivocal. I want you to know, especially to those of you who are on the fringe or coming in or you think you're in but you're not sure, I want to say, Christ is saying to you, I am clearly visible. My truth can be made known. Do you see me? The question is not, are you trying to put life together without this picture? The question is, do you have the patience and desire to put life together in a godly way? That's the question. And he follows it up. Look at verse 35. He follows it up with this this caution. He says so in his caution. He says, see to it then that the light within you is not darkness. This is the charge of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ, is for you to see to it that when the light is there, you do not miss it. That you do not fill yourself up with darkness, but rather you fill it up with light. And the Bible is full of so many of these cautions, so many. I, I could have written down 30, I wrote down three. 
This is from Deuteronomy. Just listen to the phrase, okay? This idea of light and blindness and vision, how God uses it in a spiritual way. This is Deuteronomy 16. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Do you hear that? A bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Do you hear what the Lord is saying? The Lord is saying that when you participate in a dark thing, it darkens you. And then your ability to see the light is hindered. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, and this is page 802 if you want to turn to it. I'll give you time because it's good. 2 Corinthians 4, 1. This is what Paul says to the church. Now, it's, I'm going to read six verses. So um, I'll walk through it slowly, but I'm just going to read it as we go. But the pieces fit together. Listen, verses, first verse. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Because of God's mercy, we've been, we've been called into his people. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What is he saying there? He's saying what I told you the job of the church is. The job of the church is to recognize the mercy of God and his coming to save us through his resurrection and to proclaim his truth plainly to the world. And by the way, they proclaim it so that it can be plainly seen to every man's conscience. I just got to say, if you're on the bubble about how you vote on moral issues... Second, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says, we seek to fight for truth for every man's conscience. How we can just let people live a lie. This is a tangent, but you just didn't know it. Southern Poverty Law Center. Southern Poverty Law Center is, is an activist group that for years and years and years triumphs civil rights. And they triumph civil rights by being a watchdog for KKK and Aryan Nation and all these other sorts of civil rights things. In many people's minds, that's a great organization, and for good reasons they think that way. But Southern Poverty Law Center has adopted a position on gay marriage. And you know who is now a hate group? American Family Association and Family Research Council, who have the exact same theological position that you and I do. In other words, Southern Poverty Law Center, if it was, if it was a survivable statement, would call this church a hate group. Are we going to allow the phrase of bigotry and hate to be a bowl on the true light and truth of Jesus Christ? The truth is always healthy, and it is most healthy to those who least want to hear it. That's what he's saying. By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He's saying we are not ashamed of our proclamation of truth. And even if our gospel is veiled, he says, It is what? It is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has... Who's the God of this age? It's Satan. 
okay? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants of Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What a charge to the church. Jesus Christ is in your soul to shine so the world can see. And the world that cannot see it is because it is veiled because they have followed after the dark one. They followed after Satan and Satan has veiled their eyes. That's what he's saying. We are the light. If you cannot see it, now this gets mysterious. You might be inclined to say, if it cannot be seen, it's because the devil made you do it or because the devil is responsible. And there's mystery in this, okay? There is mystery in how the Spirit climbs into our soul and fixes things on the way to salvation and the fact that he cautions us to see the light. We cannot ignore the fact that Jesus Christ in the, ver- in the 35th verse of the 11th chapter says, see to it that you have good eyes. Why would he not warn you if you did not participate? I'm just saying, we cannot arrive at the, at the throne and say the devil made me do it. God will say, I have judged the devil righteously. I'm talking about you. It's, that's hard. It should sound hard. God is holy. And he's only light, and in him there is no darkness. How can he bring a cataract-filled spirit into his presence? Jesus is cautioning us to scratch away, to humble, humble yourself. I know things have gone wrong in your life. I know you've, there's injustice. I know you're a victim. I know that. I know one, two, three, a thousand things have happened that have. Jesus is saying, Look, I have come so that you might have life. I'll take care of that. Humble yourself and peel away. Is that not his caution earlier in the sign of Jonah? The queen of the south will stand up in judgment and condemnation against this wicked generation. Why? Because she saw the wisdom of Solomon and you're missing it in Christ. He said the men of Nineveh will rise up against this generation. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and you're missing someone who's far greater than Jonah. Are those not real cautions, real warnings? You should leave this morning having made some decision. And then there's a promise. 36 is a promise. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light, this is, this is just, this is a verse that's easier to feel than it is to explain. So just feel it, okay? This is the promise. This is what Jesus is gonna do for me one day, okay? Therefore, if your whole body is full of light, and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. I want that. Do you want that? This, this is what I think it is. When, when we're in the dark, when we're a people who are in the dark, and I know how this feels, when we're people in the dark and the light shines, the first experience we feel is annoyance. Like when you're waking up and, or you've been in a dark alley or you've been playing in the dark and someone shines a flashlight in, our first experience is to block out the light. Our first experience is to shade it away and to barely let any light creep through our fingers. And it's annoying and it's frustrating. Jesus is saying, it's your job to look. We want to be a people 
through the work of Christ who stare the sun straight on. That's what we want to be. I'll, I'll close with this. There's a moment in the ministry of Christ where he's preaching and he hears that his friend Lazarus has died. And he goes to see Lazarus. And Lazarus is dead and everyone's mourning. And the Lord starts to mourn. Which, isn't it just a great part of the Bible? Like, I know he loves me. And so Christ looks at all the death and destruction that frustrate you and they frustrate me and it brings him to a point of mourning. It's like the whole world could have been described in that little circle. It's like the world is crying, it's groaning because of the burden of sin and Jesus sees it and it moves him to tears. And when it moves him to tears, people around, they remark about him, they say, look, see how he loved him. Speaking of Lazarus. But someone who had a doubt says this, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? And Jesus hears it, and he says, deeply moved, he came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across it, and he said, take away the stone. Do you not think that the God who can heal your blindness can raise you from life, death to life? That's what he came for. God's come so that we can have life. And that comes by him healing our sight and restoring our ability to see him. He's so full of the desire to save us. That's why he is the light of the world. In this life, there's two things we need. We need to know the picture. What does the picture look like? And then we need to know, do we have the desire and the patience to conform to that image? You should be able to make a decision. Will you pray with me? Lord, you are good and gracious and merciful and abounding in love. You are forgiving. You show kindness to generations. You give what is undeserved. And you call us to recognize that. Lord, you made us. For that alone, as creator, you are worthy of our worship. But you made us and then you saved us. How much more are you worthy of worship? And you made us and you saved us by giving of your own personhood, of giving of your son through death and resurrection. How much more are you worthy of our praise? Father, we say in this room that we declare that your light is clearly seen. or that it's clearly been shown. Father, I pray that you would wipe away the cataracts in our hearts so that we could see it and so that your light could come in and change our lives, Lord. I pray that. I pray that for everybody, Father, but especially for those who have been wincing at the light, who have been rejecting the light, Lord. And I pray, not even those who are just here, Lord, but those who have been in our prayers. I, Father, I pray over the prayer meeting. I pray for those families, those who are on death's doorstep, who have to this day rejected you, Lord. I pray for their conversion, Lord. I pray you would work to scrape away what blinds their sight. 
And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Grace is going to come up and play. I'm available after the service to visit with anybody. I, I do want to encourage you that there, every Sunday is an invitation to faithfulness. And I want you to respond. The Lord wants you to respond.